Welcome to the Willing to Listen South Bruce Proud podcast. Willing to Listen is a grassroots volunteer group based in South Bruce, Ontario, that is dedicated to thoroughly investigating multiple aspects of Canada's proposed deep geological repository for spent nuclear fuel. I'm Sheila Wittick, and I'm so excited to have you join me as we delve into this controversial project. Today, I'm joined by Mr. John Heaton. He is the chair of the Mayor's Nuclear Task Force in Carlsbad, New Mexico, which has been overseeing the WIP facility for a number of years. As well, he was involved with the beginning of the WIP facility as far back as the mid-70s. We will be discussing community perceptions of the WIP facility, both before and after its construction, as well as the incident in 2014 and how it affected the community's perception of the facility. Thanks so much for joining me today, John. I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, do this with me. I'm very, very pleased to do it. I'm a big advocate of the nuclear industry, both the front end of the fuel cycle and the back end of the fuel cycle. Yeah, the back end seems to get forgotten a lot. <laughs> it, it absolutely is forgotten. And unfortunately, there are people that use that to stop the front end of the fuel cycle, the fact that there are no answers. And there are answers. Yeah, for sure. If you would, wouldn't mind just taking a couple of minutes and introducing yourself. Okay, again, uh, my name is John Heaton, and I have been associated with the WIP project in Carlsbad for more years than I'd probably like to say, but I was engaged as far back as 1975. If you can believe that, you can tell by my white hair that I have uh, been around for a while. So at any rate, it's been a long, long process. And uh, during that, that period, I've been an advocate of, of nuclear power and the nuclear industry. My background is that I'm a pharmacist and in the pharmacy education, there is a lot of physics and chemistry. So as a consequence, I have a working understanding of the nuclear industry in a peripheral way. And I've been a legislator, legislator uh, for 14 years and during that period, I served on uh, numerous state committees having to do with uh, the nuclear industry and oversight of, as an example, the, the WIP site. And also, uh, I chaired the energy committee for the NCSL. It's an organization made up of legislators across the country. It's equivalent to the National Governors Association in the United States and a very, very active organization. And uh, within that energy committee, uh, many policy decisions were made. I had an opportunity to visit uh, most of the uh, major facilities that were involved in the uh, nuclear industry in terms of developing uh, weapons and the cleanup of, of the weapons uh, facilities and also was able to uh, visit numerous power plants 
and gain a, a rather deep understanding of how they operate, how they work, the safety features, and uh, they're pretty remarkable. And uh, been involved with uh, meetings with the NRC uh, related to these facilities, and uh, they are an amazingly rigorous oversight organization that I think uh, are very important in terms of uh, safety for the industry, and they are, are tough, tough regulators. So that's a little bit of my involvement for the last maybe 12 years. I've chaired the mayor's uh, whip oversight committee, which we call the mayor's nuclear committee. Mm -hmm. uh, I've chaired that in the local community. And uh, that's been a, a joy to do that. And so it's the whip project is also a project that uh, the quality of it, the, uh, the mining operation, Everything about it is uh, first class, and uh, so it's uh, you know it's a pleasure, and it's you know been in a, it's been in operation since 1999. So we've had uh, you know 21, 22 years of experience with the project. I hope that gives you a little summary of my background. No, that's great, John. I'd like to start um, with my first question. If we can maybe talk about the incident that occurred at the WIP facility in 2014, um, if you could just give me a brief overview of your understanding of that incident. We did have one incident in 2014. There was a, one of the national labs sent us some waste that was uh, had uh, a lot of nitrates in it, and they were using a, a, a compost to absorb the nitrates, which was uh, something that was not approved. And so as a consequence, a drum caught fire and blew the top off of it in the mine and of course set off all the alarms and created a, a significant amount of contamination in the mine. And uh, we're still not up to delivering the number of shipments that we typically were doing prior to the incident. But uh, I think there's was a lot of confidence gained in the facility itself, how it operated, the safety procedures. We had another ventilation system, which went through a HEPA filters. And so the system worked as proposed. The, Radio, radioactive uh, material were trapped in the HEPA filter and then only during the, con the converting from a conversion to a release of the air to the atmosphere was subsequently changed over to release through the HEPA, HEPA filters. And during that short release period, there was some radioactivity released to the atmosphere, a very, very small amount the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency in the United States, found it to be inconsequential. And uh, the, we, we have a monitoring center in Carlsbad that monitors the flora, the fauna, uh, the air 
the water and that <clears throat> that system picked up the radiation immediately uh, when it was released and uh, reported the system, reported the amount that was uh, that was released and then continued to monitor thereafter. We had uh, numerous town hall meetings right in the beginning and explanations by the physicists at the independent monitoring center uh, gave explanations about the amount of radiation and whether it was an amount that actually would impact individuals and and or the flora and the fauna in the area and the answer was no and uh, I can always remember there was a lady in a red dress in the back of the room and uh, and she stood up at the end. She said, listen, I have, I'm a single mom. I have four children and I don't know anything about rams and rads and what you people are talking about. But she said, I, I want to know whether uh, my family is safe and whether I should stay or whether I should move. And unequivocally, uh, it was explained to her that the radiation was so small and it was now stopped and run through a HEPA filter system that she and her family were perfectly safe. She said, that's all I wanted to hear. And she said, that is one of my questions about um, the incident that I never know what to call it. Um, I think that's a good term for it. You know, my, my question was like, did that negatively affect the environment or the water or the people that live I know there's no people really close by to the facility, but you know, were there any, were there any large scale effects of this? Because we get it told to us by our anti-nuclear group that, you know, this, this incident at the whip is this demonstration of how DGRs are failures. And, you know, I don't see it that way. So I wonder if like, did the community see it that way that, you know, this incident displayed that this was I, not a good I don't thing? Yeah, I don't think the community saw it that way. In fact, as it turns out, I think the community gained confidence in the system that was in place. In fact, right from the beginning, we had thought there could potentially be a release. We thought the release would be from a rockfall that would crush some drums. And, and that crushing event would cause a release. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the system was set up that from the mine to the point where the, the air is released from the mine, it's about uh, a nine minute period of time, seven to nine minutes. And so the, the release notification electronically is immediately. And so the reason we had, we had HEPA filters in place and a diversionary system to change the airflow from you know, going to outside air and that diversionary system was set up as a precaution uh, because we had thought there would probably be a rockfall that nobody would know about or could prevent. And so this was a system set up to divert the airflow from uh, just going out into the environment and diverting it through the HEPA filters to make mm -hmm. sure that there were no radio, radioactive particles that were released 
uh, and into the air. So it was there right from the beginning and uh, it had the systems in place to, to divert the air. And I think we were all, you know, there were some people thinking that it would never happen, but there were others that thought as a precaution that we needed a HEPA filter system in place for, uh, for just exactly the event that occurred. And it worked just as we had proposed it to work 20 years ago. So, so yeah. it was, it was, a, a, I think everybody in the community as a result gained a lot of confidence in the safety of the mine. So before the facility was constructed, what, like, what was the perception of the plan within the community of Carlsbad? Like, how was it perceived before the facility was there? Well, back in the uh, mid to late 70s, there was a lot of concern about it. And uh, we, we, had, we had potash mines in the area. So everybody knew about salt. They knew about potash mining and knew about the safety record that it had, which was extraordinary. Very few industrial accidents. Uh, that were a result of the mine. So the, the city fathers at the time made an extraordinary decision. And they, they said, uh, let's, let's, not, let's not weigh in pro or con about the project. Let's wait and hear what the scientists have to say, what the geologists have to say, the geophysicists have to say. Uh, and so Sandia National Laboratory, which has a, a wonderful reputation, they were they were chosen as the uh, scientific body for the project, and so they they were making studies from drill holes and that sort of thing, that and some uh, exploration of oil and gas in the area, and looked at looked at those logs and what have you to determine where the best site would be. And we already knew that the thickness of the salt was greatest in the area where it was. So the, the salt thickness um, made, a big dip, made a big difference in terms of where the siding would be. So at any rate, the, uh, an exploratory sinking of a shaft uh, occurred. And so that was a step that Congress provided the money, money for, and that Sandia convinced the public that this is the way to know one way or another about the, the salt and about the facility. And so they actually sunk, sunk the shaft, uh, and then they had some rooms uh, in, the, in, in the science area of the mine which was on the north end, and they they had a number of facilities to uh, where they put in uh, heat. You know, at, at the time it was I must say say this at the time it was begun, we were anticipating taking not only transuranic waste but uh, spent fuel and high level waste. So there were there was significant heat component to all of that. And so Sandia was doing investigations as to the closing rates of the, of the salt, 
and the encapsulation rates that would occur, water trans move, you know, movement through the rock. Uh, they, they had a whole host of experiments going on. Every month we had a, we, we had a breakfast and it was open to the public and uh, the public could come in and listen to where Sandia was in the activities associated with the project, the mine. And so that was the first, uh, those, those were the first uh, public hearings that people were able to come to and ask questions. And Sandia gave uh, responses as well as updates on, on what was going on and how things were performing, uh, the closure rates and that kind of thing based on heat. They have tension wires between the walls to see how quickly they, they moved. And there were just a whole host of things, rooms, uh, had the mush, a mushroom room where it, it looked like a mushroom and uh, they had the heat level up was up to the level of the spent fuel. And so uh, all of that was taken into consideration in the beginning. And then uh, ultimately in the 1997, Yucca Mountain was to take the spent fuel high level waste we were to take the transuranic waste. So that's mm -hmm. what we've been taking, which is a much lower level of, of waste. That's more or less how it, how it was uh, developed and public confidence was gained. There were uh, a number of groups that formed that were supporting groups and uh, they were active in the community and active at the legislature. And in, I believe it was 1979, our, our local legislators, in order to develop confidence, they passed a bill called the Radioactive and Hazardous Materials Committee, which was, is a statutory committee of the legislature. And their obligation is to oversee the WIP project. That's their number one obligation They've taken on others as time has gone by, but that is the that is the their their main mission. So, uh -huh. at least once a year they meet and hear all kinds of presentations on the WIP project and how it's going and uh, problems that might exist and the progress they made in, in transporting waste to fill the site. It has a it has a fixed number of six point two million cubic feet of waste. And so uh, we believe that that's probably adequate to take care of the transuranic waste in the, in the defense system. It's limited to defense, transuranic waste. We can't take civilian waste. It's primarily to clean up all the Cold War facilities in the United States. How was Carlsbad selected? Is it, was it just based purely on the thickness of the salt formation there? We really selected ourselves. There were, there were three proposed sites, one in Texas, which was in the, the same salt bed that we have. And then there were a couple of other sites chosen. And ultimately, they ended up choosing Yucca Mountain as, as the site. 
they then uh, chose us as a site for transuranic waste. But those other sites were not strong advocates of a facility, whereas we became very strong advocates, knowing all the, the features of salt and, and how it performed. And having worked in it for years and years, everybody was confident about the salt itself. We just had to basically understand the radioactive materials and how they impacted the salt. Uh-huh. And of course, in the beginning, it was going to be for high-level waste and spent fuel. So it had a different prospects about how the mine would perform. Uh-huh. And so those those were uh, separate issues at that time. And then ultimately, they chose Yucca Mountain as the, as the high-level waste repository. They would have probably been much better off choosing the WIP site as that facility because of the support we had in the in the area. And I think you can't, there's no substitute for local support. And in spite of the fact that there were always, a, there are always a few people opposing it and they're very, very loud, there's only basically a few compared to the number of people that were supporting it. Things like putting in the Environmental Monitoring Center was an important feature in gaining confidence in the facility itself. And we started that in uh, 1988, uh, having meetings about it. I was leading that that group we met every Monday for breakfast uh, for two years. And then we put the, put the final proposal together and gave it to our congressional delegation. And uh, they were able to sell it to Congress. And it's run by New Mexico State University. We had a lot of debates about who should manage it. And our conclusion was that tenured professors are the most independent people that we have basically in our society to oversee a project and oversee the results that they were constantly monitoring related to the project. Hmm. And uh, so it, it ended up being, I think, another big item in terms of creating more confidence and it's still operating today. And as I said earlier, it was very instrumental in, in creating confidence after the incident. Mm-hmm. It, originally it was um, Dr. James Conka who mentioned the independent monitoring facility to me. I hadn't heard about it before, but I love that. If we were to get a DGR here, I will be an advocate of having a similar facility here for independent monitoring. So I think it's really important for the community and just for a a backup monitoring place, you know, that's not affiliated with the nuclear industry. Yes. And that that's an important aspect of it, that it's not operated by the federal government or it's not operated by some industry Mm -hmm. people so that it's so that it is truly independent. And so like, before the facility was built, like what kind of concerns specifically did people of Carlsbad have? Like what kind of concerns did you hear from that community? Well, I, I think that as we had these monthly meetings 
the people that uh, seemed to be concerned about it were coming to the meetings and it seemed to ameliorate uh, their concerns. Now, there were always a couple of people that thought that somehow there was going to be an explosion or it wasn't tested adequately. And they, you've, you've heard all of the uh, comments about nuclear materials, the nuclear industry, which are absolutely not true. And it's full of misinformation. And uh, they, they derive their information from the bomb explosions and they can't get away from that. And it's based in, on fear. And mm -hmm. uh, from my perspective, they're irrational about understanding the, the, the technical issues about nuclear materials. They fail, they re refuse to study it. Yeah, I, I almost find the term that I found myself not so much using, but attributing to that is a willful ignorance. They don't want to learn about it and they don't want to know the truth about it. They want to remain fearful and remain in opposition. And have you had many issues surrounding the transportation of radioactive materials to the WIP facility? The transportation system for WIP has been remarkable. You know, the, the number of miles they've traveled uh, I, I think there's been 12 minor incidences in, in the life of, of the WIP transportation system. Uh, we've had drunks run into the back of a truck. We've had, uh, you know, various minor things. People, the, the, the drivers will miss when there's road work going on. There's a maybe a, a big detour. Sometimes they've missed that. We did have one truck go off the road. The driver had some kind of an incident, but we've never lost a payload off the, off the trailer. And it's the same way with high-level waste and spent fuel in the United States. We've had over 1,300 transports of, of spent fuel in the country and more than 800 naval transports of fuel from either coast to Idaho where it's stored. And so, and, and worldwide, there have been thousands of shipments with no incidences. The cask makeup uh, is very robust. In the United States, the NRC can't say there's zero risk, but they say the risk is one in a billion, which is about as close to zero as you can get. I do find that transportation seems to be a hot topic. It's kind of funny to me because the argument always comes up, you know, like you can't control accidents. You don't know, like that's why they're accidents. And it's, it's trying to explain that we know we can't prevent the accident or the incident. It's preventing a release of contamination in response to that. So it's, it's designing the cask and designing, you know, the system that's hauling the radioactive material to maintain its integrity in the event of an accident. You're exactly right. And over here, the testing process is to drop the cask on its most vulnerable point and then to drop it on a spike, see if it gets punctured, and then burn it in jet fuel for 30 minutes and then uh, anticipate that they're probably run into an embankment where, where it has a bridge and a piece of steel would be sticking out 
and the cask would be thrown against it to emulate a, a puncture. And so these are all designed to think about how a, how a, a collision would occur and how the the integrity of the cask is maintained. So, mm-hmm. you know, burning in jet fuel would represent a car being adjacent to it that would catch fire. And then after the emergency response people, the typical response that they have is to spray it with water. And, and so to check the temperature change that might cause cracks in the cask. And so after the it's burned and fired. The NRC test is to, to submerge it in 30 feet of water to make sure that there's no leaks anywhere. These are kind of rigorous tests that are intended to replicate uh, a, a collision, whether it's a train or truck or however you want to. Yeah. Wanna... Well, and I believe those tests are the international standard because they sound... Look at the cask. They sound and the exact so... same as what our casks go through here too. I, I think they have become international standards, IAEA, and yeah. everybody has adopted so, those. So when we look at the the incident in 2014, and then, you know, the operations beyond that, um, how have the perceptions changed? Like, have people become more accepting of the facility than they were at the start? Well, I think that there's a lot, uh, maybe more confidence in the facility, and the and uh, of, of course, the the incident was the result of of, of having uh, organic material mixed with an nitrate, which is a no no. You will you will end up basically with a fire. And so, uh, even though the directions were not to ever mix with with a organic, only use clay materials or other absorbents that are inorganic those precautions were violated. And so that caused the incident, but the incident basically threw radioactive material around in the mine and the mine had to be cleaned up after that. So cleanup started and uh, we basically understood that if we washed down the walls and the, and the ceiling, the back, which is called the ceiling and the walls, uh, wash them down just with water. That if you've ever seen a block of salt that's been wetted, then it gets really shiny and uh, it actually encapsulates anything underneath it. So any radioactive material was contained and then any that was free on the walls and ceiling that were washed down, went into the floor, and there's a foot of salt in the flooring throughout the mine. So it was just washed down into the into the flooring, and then some some uh, material was put on top of that, so that it would uh, we would understand if we ever broke through the top surface that then it would need to be replaced. And, and a, you know, how the buggies were going up and down the, yeah. the various drifts. So, so anyway, that was a, a rather cheap and elegant way to, to do that. There were some rooms that were 
where the incident actually occurred that were contaminated enough that they were just closed off. Right. So, so they're typically, we have seven rooms in each major drift and, and they, it goes uh, east and west in a facility. And so those rooms were just, uh, were barricaded off, shut, shut off with uh, salt and other, you know, salt blocks and barricades. And so the rooms that were cleanable were cleaned up and waste was then uh, in, in, implanted in those, in those rooms. And so I wonder, did having this facility or does having this facility in the community ever negatively affect any other industries? Um, I know yeah. here we have we have the agricultural concern here too, because we have a lot of farmers here in Bruce County. And there's this concern that, you know, having this facility is going to negatively impact our other industries. You know, that's never been an issue in Carlsbad. The farming community, there's, you know, there's no interaction with the water. And uh, so that's never been an issue by farmers or ranchers in the area. Uh, related to the the facility, they look at it as a uh, a closed kind of system, and uh, so it has not had any impact on any other industry. Uh, oil and gas, we have a, a big oil and gas agenda here in town, uh, in the area, and uh, <clears throat> there's never been any impact on it other than competition for employees. <laughs> yeah. So, so in, engineers are always in big demand and, and some other employees, there's always that competition that's, that's gone on. But otherwise, right. there's been no impact one way or another. That's good. And I guess my last question, which kind of surrounds what we're doing right now, we're trying, we're going through this process here where we have to decide whether we are willing to host this community, this facility as a community. And I'm wondering, like, how did how did Carlsbad do that? Were the people given a given some sort of vote or a, an opinion poll, or did the councils decide, or how was it decided? No, we we became, you know, because we had volunteered as as a site. There was never any vote or any other decision made like that. It was just simply uh, the fact that it was highly supported by Carlsbad. And because the citizens were supporting it and we could identify very few that were opposed to it, uh, it just proceeded forward. So it was, we had, we had consent by the elected leaders, all supported it strongly. And so the city council, county commission, the neighboring counties were uh, supporting it. Their elected people, our, our senators, representatives that were in the state legislature, and also our national Senate members were supportive and, and strong advocates of it. So that is basically how consent occurred. It just evolved. And I know everybody's okay. seeking, seeking some way <clears throat> to figure out how you deal with consent. And uh, it's a pretty nebulous thing to, to really think about. And I'm not sure if you took a vote 
on any nuclear project, whether you would get a positive outcome from that. But mm -hmm. because I think there are a lot of people that just have been concerned ever since nuclear weapons were, were around. Yeah. And uh, but so I don't think that's an appropriate way to look at consent. And well, and I always worry about like specifically when we start talking about having a vote for the facility, one of my big concerns lately has been, is that setting a really dangerous precedent? Are we going to vote on everything that wants to happen in town? You know, like if a new dairy barn goes up at the edge of town, that might negatively influence the people who live near it. So should they all get to say they don't want that person to build a barn? Like at what point do we draw the line on what we do and don't vote for? And I, I think you're absolutely right. I think then that it is a very difficult topic to discuss. I think that uh, to a large degree, you have to rely on your elected officials. I mean, they, they, rep, they represent the public. And I think if they hear enough dissent, I think that then they're, they're going to feel that they're obligated to vote against it or not support it. In closing, then, I'll just ask your general opinion, Audrey, on do you believe that DGRs are a safe way to store nuclear waste? At this time, it's the, it's the only way. I think that uh, any, any de deep geologic formation is probably the only way to store it and to have confidence that over, I don't know what your time limit is there, but, you know, the, the fission materials are gone in 250 to 300 years. And so that's in geologic time, it's not very long, but that's where all the heat and the dangerous radiation is. Mm -hmm. the, the radiation associated with plutonium and neptunium is, is alpha emitting radiation, which I think we all know can be stopped by paper or clothing or, or, or virtually anything. It's only dangerous if it's inhaled or eaten. And mm -hmm. uh, I don't think anybody's going to run around breathing plutonium particles or, mm -hmm. or going to be eating them. So I, I think that uh, the fact that I don't know how your spent fuel, I don't know how it's your, your fuel rods are, are they encapsulated in ceramic? Yeah. Yep. Ceramic, ceramic, ceramic pellets. Yep. Okay. Okay, well, it's like ours, and I don't know if they're the same size or not, but at any rate, ours are in ceramic pellets, and so there's no way to get them into a fissionable state uh, that would cause any, any issues. You're not going to have the, the movement of the salt like we do. The, the, your, your facilities will just be stagnant and be filled over the course of time. And uh, I mean, you'll be filling the various rooms and then it'll be closed. And uh, when, it's, when it's closed, it's closed. And the closure techniques are very robust again and end up converting themselves to the rock you have. You're gonna probably be using concrete and, and other, other closure methods. Yeah, there's uh, uh, there's a list. <laughs> there's a yeah, list there, of different stages. There's a list. It's a yeah. it's a very long list of materials that go in for into the closure, and uh, so 
you know, it's it's stored forever. And so that's that's the uh, that's the end of it. Yeah. And it get, gets it out of the gets it out of the environment and it can uh, decay at a normal rate. And the, the materials that are left over, the plutonium, neptunium that take thousand years to thousands of years to get rid of, they are virtually innocuous. And so yeah, as long I'm as a, there's no... I'm a big supporter of not keeping it on the surface where we're relying on people to repackage it correctly and monitor it correctly and just oversee it correctly for eternity. I feel like we need to put it somewhere where we're not relying on humans. They're much better and, and safer kept in a deep geologic repository. There's no question about it, that it should be the ultimate goal. I definitely think it is the preferred and the proper way to deal with spent fuel. So there will be a huge amount of investigation that goes on at your site. Are you doing any deep geologic studies right now? At they, your actually, site? Um, they actually uh, just are doing their second deep borehole right now. Okay. So when they get through with all those investigations geologically, you should know without question about the integrity of the facility. Yeah. I'm looking forward to those results. Those are the yeah. ones that I'm most excited for. Then it's time. I, I mean, people should restrain themselves regarding their opinions until those studies are, are finalized. And yeah, I agree. Then, the, then they will tell the story about the safety of the repository. Agreed. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, John. This was really great. We're running up on our hour here, so <laughs> I'll cut us off so that we don't end well, up I've with been, a uh, super long episode. I, I've enjoyed it. I hope it's informational for your for your listeners and people. No, it's great. The, the whip is brought up a lot around here about how, you know, it's a failure and it shows how DGRs aren't safe and that, you know, the people of Carlsbad don't want it there. So I think it's it's really good to hear voices from that community um, stand up and say, no, those things aren't true. <laughs> None of that's true. That, that is absolutely not true. They, there may be two or three people in town, but the vast, vast majority of people strongly support it and have a, a very good background in nuclear materials through the years. Uh, I always like to say people in our community have a high nuclear IQ. And so they, they understand everything about it. And I think that makes a huge difference. And we've got uh, some 1,200 employees that work out there and they're part of our community. And they continue to tell the story from their own personal experiences. And so it's, uh, it's been a great facility. They, uh, the jobs are, have been tremendous. They're, they're clean. Uh, they're safe. And so they have people working there uh, enjoy the jobs and enjoy the work they're doing. Uh, the pay scale is, is very good. And uh, I think that all of them support what they're doing. Yeah, that's so good to hear. All right. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I look forward to chatting again sometime. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks. And that's it for this episode of Willing to Listen South Brews Proud. I look forward to further investigating Canada's plan for spent nuclear fuel along with all of you. Thanks so much for joining me. And remember, 
We don't have to agree on anything to be kind to one another. Mm-hmm.